Well, what a wonderful time of worship that was, huh? Praise God. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, in October of 1939, one month after the beginning of World War II, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was asked to predict the future course of action for the nation of Russia. And the always quotable Churchill responded by saying, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, Churchill was speaking of Russia, but how many Christians feel the same way when asked to describe the Trinity? Because even though we come to church and we sing Trinitarian songs and we pray Trinitarian prayers and we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how many of us, when asked to describe the Trinity, dial up our inner Churchill and respond by saying, well, you know, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, the problem with that response is we are not a prime minister describing a country. We are Christians describing our God. Theologian Bruce Ware wrote a book called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that book, he writes about the importance of Christians studying the doctrine of Trinity. And here are the words that Ware writes. He says, Would God have chosen to reveal himself to us as the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unless he knew that this would be important to our understanding of him and of our faith? In other words, if God was not concerned with us knowing him as a triune God, then why in the world would he have revealed himself to us in that manner? So, I think we can say that studying God and studying God in Trinity is a worthy pursuit. And it's really an act of worship. And yet, with that being said, I want to make one thing clear that's going to be really important for us as we go through this doctrine of Trinity these next four weeks. And what I want to make clear is that our pursuit of knowledge about God is never to replace our pursuit of intimacy with God. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, your pursuit of knowledge about God should never overwhelm your pursuit of intimacy with God. And yet, our intimacy with God is most certainly connected to our knowledge of Him, right? The two are linked. Intimacy and knowledge are linked. Because we want to know God accurately, So that we can worship him accurate to who he is. And who he is, is the one God who exists eternally in Trinity. And that's why I am more than excited about this series. A lot of people think I'm crazy that when I finally get to choose a series, I do four weeks on the Trinity. But as you can talk to any of the college and singles that I get to work with, I love talking about the Trinity. I love discussing the doctrine of Trinity because I see it as the center of everything. Because it's not just a doctrine we're talking about, it's the description of who God is. And that is why we're going to spend the next month looking at this wonderful doctrine. And we're going to look at the Trinity in a variety of ways. This week is going to be a little bit academic, so I want to warn you, it's going to be like drinking out of a fire hydrant. We're going to come back next week and we're going to look at 
the roles within the Godhead, the ministries of each member of the Trinity. We'll come back in week three and we'll talk about what it means to be individuals who are made in the image of God, as Genesis tells us, when God exists in Trinity. And then we'll close up the series with talking about how we can develop a Trinitarian worldview that will ultimately lead to Trinitarian worship. And what may end up surprising you through the course of this series is that though the Trinity is a deeply theological topic, deep theological topic, it is something that has tremendous application for our life in the here and now. This is not some ivory tower discussion. This is something that has great implications and applications for us in 2015. But before we get to those practical applications that are going to come predominantly in the next three weeks, we need to lay the foundation. And so that's what we're going to to do this morning. We are going to lay this foundation of the doctrine of Trinity brick by brick by answering three questions. Three questions. The first question we're going to answer is, what is the doctrine of Trinity? What is it? And we are going to define it and we are going to describe it. But let me warn you, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to comprehend it. We're going to define and describe, but hit the brakes in terms of total comprehension. The second thing we're going to answer is, why do we believe in the Trinity? Why do we believe in it? And then number three... We're going to answer, how did the doctrine of Trinity develop in the early church? How did it develop? So we're going to take a peek into church history. Okay, so it's pretty ambitious this morning. we got a lot to cover, but it's going to be a wonderful adventure. So this morning is the what, then the why, then the how. And like I said, I think the best place for us to start is defining it. Defining the doctrine of Trinity. So to do that, I want you, I want to create a scenario. You're out at your local grocer, which for most of us means you're out at H-E-B. Exactly. So you're out at H-E-B on aisle eight, and there you see your neighbor, your old neighbor from your old neighborhood. Okay? And you haven't seen them in a while, and they know you're a Christian. And they're that good person that you've been praying for. They're good people. You just want them to come to faith. And you come closer together. You exchange pleasantries. And then they say, hey, I've been doing a lot of spiritual searching lately. And you're like, yeah? They're like, yeah. And and you're a Christian. And you're like, yeah. And they go, can I ask you something? And you're like, come on, give it to me. And they go, can you explain to me this doctrine of Trinity? Like, how can you believe in one God and yet worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Will you just tell me what's going on? There you are on aisle eight. Uh-oh. How would you answer that? What would be your response? It's a, it's a tough question, isn't it? Even for most Christians. And yet, and yet, this is part of our faith. It's part of our, it's basic to our faith. Well, if you go on the Wayside website and you look at our doctrinal statement, you will see our doctrinal belief about the doctrine of Trinity. And it's a pretty standard belief that you see in most churches, Orthodox churches in America, around the world, or Christian organizations. And here's what it states. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. 
So this is going to be our working definition over the next month as we go through this series. This is our definition of the doctrine of Trinity. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. And right away within this definition, you see three things that are essential for us to understand about the doctrine of Trinity. Three things that you have to grasp and affirm. Number one, you see singularity. Singularity. We believe in one God. We believe in one God. The second thing you see is plurality. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three divine persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we've got singularity. We've got, number two, plurality. And number three, you have equality. There is equality within the Godhead. So any definition of Trinity, or better stated, any Christian definition of Trinity, will have all three of these elements, singularity, plurality, and equality. So I want to spend a few minutes and unpack each one of these a little more, but I want to warn you, this is the toughest part of the sermon. This is the most difficult part of the doctrine of Trinity. Because as your bulletin says, the Holy Trinity, the mystery of God. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that can be defined. It's a mystery that can be described. It's not a mystery that can be solved. So if you think we're going to come to church this morning, I'm going to give you some new insight. Like, oh, I get it now. It's not going to happen. We're going to define it. We're going to describe it. We're not going to solve it because it's beyond our comprehension. So if this ends up being difficult to grasp and understand, then I have one thing to say to you. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. It's a club that exists, that, that it consists of every Christian that's ever lived. Okay, so you're in good company. So singularity, plurality, and equality. Let's start with singularity. We believe in one God. We do not believe in three gods. Do not say we believe in three gods. That is polytheism. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God. Okay? So the question then is obvious. If there are three divine persons and each person is God, in what sense can we speak of God as one? And we are right now in the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. And so here is how we answer that. Okay? The oneness of God is defined primarily by what is known as his essence or his nature. Those words are interchangeable. Think back to Wayside's definition when it talked about the three divine persons. It said that they are identical in nature. Now the question then follows, what do we mean by nature? What do we mean by nature? And so to answer that, I want to ask you a question. Imagine right here I told you to get out a sheet of paper. And I want you to list on that sheet of paper the things that make God, God. I want you to write down the things that make God, God. Uh, the things that give God his godness, so to speak. What is it that you would write down? I want you to think about that for a second. What would you write down on that sheet of paper? I think most of us would write down things such as God is eternal. He is timeless. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. 
God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. God is holy. He is righteous. So we would not write down things that are material, but things that are immaterial. And these things are called his attributes, also known as the attributes of God. And it's his attributes that constitute, that make up his divine nature, the essence of God. Another way to understand this is that each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share a community of attributes that are identical. They are all perfectly holy. They are all perfectly sovereign. They are all perfectly loving. They are all perfectly omniscient. So the oneness of God, the singularity of God, is not defined by God being one person, but defined by God having one divine nature in which each member of the Trinity share the same community of divine attributes. And it is that one divine nature that gives God his singularity. We're going to unpack this a little bit more in the coming weeks, but that's good enough for now. That makes sense? Clear as mud? Okay. (laughs) Next, we come to the plurality of God. This is seen in the distinction between the three divine persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God eternally exists as three divine persons. One way to understand this is that the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. It's not as if God exists and He goes into a divine closet and puts on Father clothes sometimes. And then goes back and then says, I'm going to come out as the Son. That's not how we understand God. He eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each divine person is eternally distinct from one another, and yet there's such unity of essence and activity between them that they exist as one God. As our definition states, they are distinct, plurality, but harmonious in function, singularity. Okay, So we have singularity of essence, we have plurality of persons, and finally, we have equality amongst them. Now, how do we get equality? Well, think about it. If they are of the same essence, they have the same divine nature, then they are therefore equal in their godness. There's no varsity, sub-varsity within the Trinity, There's no A team and B team within the Trinity because if there were, there would be no Trinity. They are co-eternal and they are co-equal. Now at this point, I bet there's some head spinning, including mine as I preach it, right? And it should be. But don't be fooled into thinking that because we can't fully comprehend it, it is therefore not true. That would be foolishness. That is how the modern man responds. But that is not what scripture teaches. The great evangelist John Wesley once wrote, Bring me a worm that can comprehend man, and I will show you a man that can comprehend the the triune God. The truth is, is that we will never fully be able to grasp the depths of God, nor should we. It's God we are talking about. And yet, here's my hope. 
My hope is that we won't let that reality discourage us or dissuade us from seeking to know him more. And even worshiping him for his incomprehensibility along the way. See, here's the beauty. We get to worship God in Trinity for who he has revealed himself to be. And we get to worship God in Trinity for the mystery that he remains. Both of them send me to my knees in humble adoration. Both of those truths lead me to worship. Now, I really do wish there was an easy illustration or analogy I could use. Countless ones have been tried. You have the egg with the shell and the yolk and the egg white. You have the triangle with the three points. You have the sun with the star and the heat and the rays. You have the apple with the peel and the core and whatever it is in the middle in between those. But my favorite illustration, and I think the best illustration, actually comes from the field of thermodynamics. Now, I know what you're thinking. That guy's got to talk about thermodynamics to make this concept easier, then forget about it. I'm out of here. This is pointless, right? But follow me. This is pretty amazing. Within thermodynamics, there's what is known as the triple point. The triple point occurs when the temperature and pressure conditions are in such perfect balance that a substance can exist simultaneously in all three phases. So take water, for example. Water can exist as a solid, as a liquid, or as a gas. But when the pressure and temperature conditions are just right, that water can exist as a solid and a liquid and a gas at the exact same time. The triple point is the coexistence of all three phases in perfect equilibrium. Like I said, the Trinity is at the center of everything, even thermodynamics. So singularity, plurality, and equality, the Trinity. Well, that is the what. That is the what of the Trinity. And that's just question one. We're now going to go to the why. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Why, believe, why do we believe in this wild doctrine of a God that exists as three in one? As our former president, Thomas Jefferson, once said, a man who is not a fan of the Trinity Since when does one plus one plus one equal one? Now, at first glance, Jefferson seems to have a point, doesn't he? He seems to have a point. I mean, are we as Christians those who, when you walk through the doors this morning, before you came in, did you just take your brain out and just go, okay, brain goes here, now I can go in to worship God? I mean, are we as Christians people who just check our brains out when we come through the doors, or... Does mathematics and the laws of mathematics not really the place to look to to answer this question about who God is? The answer to this question is really answered by another question. That's how it often works, right? You have the question, and then you have the question behind the question, which is the real question. And the question behind the question, the real question we have to ask is this. How do we know what we know about God? The fancy word is epistemology. How do we know what we know about God? In other words, what are our sources of information when it comes to our knowledge of God? Just like some people turn on when they want to watch the news, they go to Fox News. And some people, when they want to get their information, they go to CNN. And like six people go to MSNBC. And... (laughs) 
and some people will go to NPR and so on and so forth. Where do we go to get our information about God? When we turn on our God television, what channels are the ones we flip to? And the channels that we flip to are there's two primary channels because we believe that God has revealed himself primarily through two channels. And those channels are the person of Christ and the Holy Bible. Those are our channels. Now, not everybody answers this question the same way. Many people, when asked, how do you know what you know about God? They say, well, that's a dumb question. God doesn't exist. A lot of people say, well, that's a dumb question because God is unknowable. Others say, no, you look out through reason, like Jefferson. Some say you look inside through experience. Others say you look out at creation or look at history. But we say we don't look in and we don't look out, but we look up. We look up and we let God have priority of defining who he is for us. And he, do, and he does that through scripture and through the person of Christ. And it is in that that we find our reasons for believing in the Trinity. Because nobody comes to the doctrine of Trinity apart from scripture, right? I mean, nobody goes outside and looks at the stars and goes, man, I think there's a God. And not only that, I think that there's one God who exists eternally as three divine persons. No, nobody does that. Nobody comes to the Trinity through looking at a mountain. We come to knowledge of the Trinity through Scripture and through the revelation of Christ. And there's numerous passages in Scripture I could go to to show you this. Okay, and I've put all those on slides for you. Okay, so you can go back later in the week and look at some of the high Christologies of Christ or look at scriptures that speak to the divinity of the Spirit. But instead of going through those proof texts one by one, I would rather focus on one person whose experience really encapsulates why we are Trinitarian, and that is the Apostle John. John. Because one thing we need to remember is that Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. And this is significant. This is really significant because the early converts in the first century to Christianity were Jews. So think about this. They are coming from a strict monotheistic understanding of God. They had truths ingrained in them since they were children like Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. They had the truth of Isaiah 42, 8, tattooed to their heart and their brain. When it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Think about that text. I will not give my glory to another. And it's God speaking. And what's amazing is that these devout and zealous Jews... Guys like John and Paul and Peter and James, they come to faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord. And they ascribe to him the same level of deity and the same worship that they do God the Father. And yet they never waver from their conviction of one God. This is incredible. They never trend towards polytheism. They just know that Jesus has fundamentally altered their understanding of that one God. And one of the greatest places we see this is in John's very own gospel. I really want to encourage you over this next month to read the gospel of John. 
Read through it. And as you read through it, keep two things in mind. Number one, keep in mind that this is a first century monotheistic Jew writing this. And the second thing I want you to look for is how prominent the doctrine of Trinity is in the Gospel of John. Think about the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, Jesus Christ, is with God, and yet He was God. What do we have there? Singularity, plurality, equality. We, it, the, verse 18 at the end of the prologue. No one has seen God at any time, the Father, but the only begotten God, Jesus, who is at the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's explained him. Now, how does he do that? Because he is God. He is God and he comes from God. Therefore, he is the only one who can truly explain God. Singularity, plurality, equality. And we see this throughout John's gospel. You go to chapter 5, and in 524, Jesus calls God his Father, and the text tells us he ascribes to himself the same deity as the Father. He makes himself equal to God. In John chapter 8, at kind of the height of Jesus butting heads with the Pharisees, in John 8:58, they're arguing over Abraham, and what does Jesus say? He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's probably the single greatest declaration of Jesus and his divinity in the entire New Testament where he looks at these Pharisees and he says, guys, I'm going to let you in a little secret. I am the preexistent Yahweh, the God of Israel. I am God. And what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. In John 10, Jesus is talking about he and the Father's joint work in the ministry of salvation and security of the believer. And in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We fast forward a few chapters to chapter 13 and 13 through 17, the upper room discourse where Jesus is meeting with the disciples for the last time and he begins to teach them about the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Now, when you look at the word another here in chapter 14, verse 16, it's the Greek word alos. And it specifically means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Meaning someone just like Jesus. Someone cut from the same cloth of Jesus. And who is that someone? It's the spirit of truth. Another name for the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches the apostles again in John chapter 16, starting in verse 12. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, notice that the Spirit is a person, not a force, not an energy, person. He has more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and discloses it to you. Notice it says the Spirit will guide them into truth. The Spirit will speak what he hears. He will disclose what is to come. Notice he says that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. 
Think back to Isaiah 42, 8. I am God. I will not give my glory to another. And here Jesus, the Spirit of God, will bring glory to the Son of God. It's amazing. We see singularity in the one God working in harmony through the plurality of the divine persons. While they may differ in function and role, they do not differ in their essence, not in their godness. It's amazing. And this transformation that happens to John, don't miss this. This transformation is absolutely radical. It is remarkable. And yet it is the same experience that countless other Jews in the first century experienced as well. Where they come to faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and come to see Him as God and yet do not waver on their conviction that God is one. And it is this worship of Jesus and it is the testimony of these folks in Scripture that give us our primary reasons for why you entered this, those doors this morning into a place that is Trinitarian. We believe in the Trinity. And yet this understanding of God and Trinity did not happen overnight, did it? This did not happen in the blink of an eye. And this brings us to our third and our final question this morning, which is the how. So how did the doctrine of Trinity develop? And to answer that, we're going to take a few minutes and look at the early church. Because as someone may have told you before, who's come up to you and said, hey, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And you know, right, that the doctrine of Trinity was not formalized until the 4th century in 325 AD. You do know that, right? And the reality of the matter is that both of those statements are true. The word Trinity is not found in Scripture. And the doctrine of Trinity was not officially formalized till 325 A.D. So the question then is obvious. What happened? How did a word not found in Scripture come to be the distinguishing doctrine of our entire faith? Because it is. There are other monotheists in the world. We are the only people that are Trinitarian. It is the distinguishing doctrine of our entire faith. You see, the main tension the early church faced, and you can imagine this, take yourself to the first century. The main tension the early church faced is how do I understand the relationship between Jesus and the Father? When Scripture is clear that there is one God and yet Jesus is God. That's a pretty significant tension, and it's the defining question of the first few centuries of our faith. You see, because the authors of Scripture never set out to give a systematic explanation of the Trinity. They have it in all their writings, like we just saw in the Gospel of John, but they never set out to, to give an explanation of how it works. That's not their job. And the reason they do not explain it, in my opinion, is because they are experiencing it. They do not explain Trinity because they are experiencing Trinity. They are witnesses to the resurrection. They are recipients of what we celebrate this morning at Pentecost. And they are recipients of the Holy Spirit there. They are writing the scriptures as inspired by God. They are not explaining it because they are experiencing the Trinity. But what happens is that they die. 
they die. Paul is executed by Nero in Rome. Peter is crucified right around the same time. The apostle John is exiled to the island of Patmos and all the apostles are martyred for their faith. They're dead. And so what happens is that over time, people start going, hey, now wait a second, wait a second. We know what the apostles taught because we have their oral teaching passed down. We know what the apostles wrote because we have the actual scriptures. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which they had since the very beginning. But they start asking the question, how does this work? How do we explain this? How do we keep people from false, having false teaching? That's the question. And the way they answer it reminds me of when I used to play freshman football back at Clark High School. Now, you didn't think I was going to get through a whole sermon, even a sermon on the Trinity, <laughs> without a football illustration, right? I mean, this is heavy stuff. We need to kind of hit the brakes for a minute and, and, and talk about football. So one of the things they would do at the end of the freshman football season is the coaches would move up some of the top freshmen so that they could practice with the varsity. And this was a huge honor. But there was one big, you know, negative about being moved up. And that's what that you became the scout team, i.e. tackling dummies for the varsity. Unfortunately for me, I was selected to be the scout team running back, which was the worst possible assignment. Because our defense was led by an all-state linebacker named Trey Merkins, who went on to play professional football. And Merkins had one job, guys, kill the person with the football, <laughs> i.e. kill the running back, i.e. kill Loudermilk. Now, I will say this time really developed my prayer life, okay? <laughs> really had a new season of prayer. I'm going to back there holding the ball. And so I remember one play specifically where there was a triple option, meaning there's three different options who could have the ball. And Trey tackles the first guy, realizes he doesn't have the ball. Goes and runs and tackles the quarterback, realizes he doesn't have the ball. Because the running back has the ball. Oh, yeah, me. Running down the sidelines. And Merkins makes a beeline for me and tackles me in a violent fashion. Because I did have the ball. Now, you may be wondering... What does this have to do with the Trinity? Well, follow me here. Because what happened is that the early church, whether it was a view that diminished the singularity of God, or a view that diminished the plurality of God, or a view that diminished the equality of God, they tackled those views and they got rid of them. They tackled them and they got rid of them because they didn't have the ball. They didn't measure up to Scripture. And so they got rid of them. They knew what they could not say in light of what Scripture did say. They just struggled with how do we say what Scripture says. And I think we can empathize. And so what happens is a guy comes along, and we're almost done. And a guy comes along who's the father of Western theology. And his name, he's got a really cool name, Tertullian. And this guy's magnificent at the end of the second century. And what he does is he starts inventing words. He creates words in which they can describe God. He invents a lot of terms. And one of the terms he invents is the term Trinitas, which is Latin, which is where we get the word Trinity. Because as I mentioned, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the truth of Trinity is. So when you talk to somebody and they say, hey, 
Trinity's not in the Bible. Hey, this is an invented doctrine. I want you to look at them. Here's what I want you to say. I want you to look at them and I want you to say, is it, invent, is it, is it an invention or is it an explanation? Is it an invention or is it an explanation? And if it's an explanation, is it consistent with Scripture? And the answer is yes. Yes. It's an invented word. It's not an invented truth. So years later, after Tertullian dies, something amazing happens in church history. Constantine, the Roman emperor, becomes a Christian. For the first time, Christianity is the official religion. And one of his first orders of business is to formalize the church's belief in the doctrine of Trinity. So he calls together 318 bishops to a little town in modern-day northwest Turkey called Nicaea. And they come together in Nicaea and they write out what becomes known as the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. They go back later a few decades in 381 and they add this section about the Holy Spirit. And to this day, that creed makes up the core beliefs of what we believe as Christians. 1,700 years later, we stand on the exact same truth. Marvelous. Marvelous. So in closing, that's a lot, right? With all that being said, I want to close this morning by reminding us, why are we doing this again? Because you may have forgotten the midst of substance and essence and person and plurality and so on and so forth. Why are we doing this series? Because look, I know this is deep stuff. You don't get deeper than the Trinity. You don't get deeper than that. It is truly the mystery of God. And if you find yourself there thinking, hey, Michael, thanks for the information dump. Really appreciated it. But if it's such a mystery and so hard to understand, then why spend four weeks talking about it? And I guess my answer to that question ultimately would be this. You know who else is a mystery to me? You know who else stretches my ability to understand my wife. And I mean that in a, want, in a loving way. My wife. But you see, I love her. I love that girl. So I study her. I pay attention. And it's hard work. It takes great effort. But I seek to know Victoria better so that I can love her better. Because ultimately, I want to love her the best I can. And I know I will never totally figure her out. But I also know that the intimacy and the quality of my marriage is in many ways connected to my effort to do so. It's connected. We will never fully grasp the Trinity. But what a shame if because of that, we then choose to avoid it. What a shame if we avoid the Trinity because it's so difficult to grasp the Trinity. Because in the end, when it comes to this Trinity, the only appropriate response is praise. It's worship. It's just worship. As we praise the God from whom all blessings flow. As we praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host as we praise the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we just confess that you are a mystery in so many ways. And we praise you for what you've revealed and we praise you for what remains a mystery because it keeps us humble and keeps us on our knees knowing that you are a big God and we will never completely figure you out. And guys, I think about how you exist in Trinity. One of the places I'm most readily reminded is the Trinity and salvation. God, how you exist in community and you created us to be in fellowship with you. But because of our sin, we created a chasm that we could not bridge to an infinitely holy God. But yet because you're in Trinity, God, you the Father sent the Son, perfectly righteous Lamb of God, who took on flesh and went to the cross dying in our place for our sin. You paid the penalty. As Romans 3.26 says, God, you are the just and the justifier because you exist in Trinity. And so as Christ took our place on the cross, we now have the bridge back to you. And you, Holy Spirit, you move in. And you stir in our hearts. And you bring us to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. And you seal us for eternity, as Ephesians 4.30 says. And so we have the Father sending the Son. We have the Son going to be the penalty for our sin. And we have the Spirit who seals and indwells us and conforms us to the image of the Son when we will see one day see you in glory. So even in our redemption, God, you are a Trinitarian redemptive God, the sender, the sacrifice, and the sealer all in one. And I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you that way, that you, Holy Spirit, would stir in their hearts and that you, Holy Spirit, would move them to come to a belief that Christ, the Son, died for their sins and that because of that, they would be restored back to the Father. Oh, God, we pray that. Thank you for just a revelation of who you are. Thank you for this morning and your word, even though it's heavy and thick and tough to conceive and to comprehend, it is good. It is so good. And we praise you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have prayer partners up here who would love to pray with you. If you have any requests, they would love to chat with you. I'll be up here up front. would love to talk with you. Thank you for uh, sticking in through the whole sermon. You can get your canoes now and go home after all the rain. We'll see you back next Sunday.